Romans 8, and I'll read 17 through 25. And Paul writes, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So last week we spent quite a bit of time uh, discussing really, in, in, in a sense, suffering and how we are to understand that in light of what Paul is talking about here. Uh, and he mentions that our suffering is a suffering with Christ um, and it also serves as an indication uh, that we are truly born again. What he's leading to is, is he really wants to encourage them so that they understand what is in store for them in the future. As you live your life now, and yes, we are saved by the grace of God, there is suffering that takes place now. We're looking forward to uh, the future. So what does the future have in store for us? How do we know that the future is going to be the way that God says it's going to be? How do we know he's going to fulfill his promises? And that's what we'll be taking a look at tonight. And again, remember that the, one of his main points, there are several, but one of the main points was that what is coming is so great that if we, if we use that as, as a perspective, which we should, then whatever we're going through now, regardless of the kind of sufferings that we are encountering, that they pale in comparison to how great things will be to the point that we then would look at what we're going through now and see it as being just a minor thing that is just kind of a minor, kind of like a speed bump kind of a thing in life. Even though it may seem to us at the moment very big and all-consuming, when you look at the timeline of things and all that's going to be ours, it really is just a speed bump. It's a very tiny, minor fraction uh, uh, of what's going to be happening in general. So let me just kind of uh, say this, that when you read I guess general book, books on philosophy, there is this idea that mankind in general normally believes that he is meant for something more. He can't always figure out what, but it seems that whatever we are going through and how we are living s seems to be in a sense misplaced, that we're not, that it's almost like we're destined for greatness, but we don't know what that is. And of course, it's understood in a lot of different ways. What Paul wants us to understand is, in a sense, that's true. But we're not really meant to be kings. We're meant to be children of the king. And we are meant to reflect the glory of God. And because of that, that's what gives us that special status. So the question we want to answer tonight, and, that's what, and all we're going to do is deal with this this evening, is what does it mean to be glorified? 
Because that's what Paul is getting at. The coming glory, our glorification. What does it mean to be glorified? And what is this glorification? So a basic definition of glorification, and then we'll get into how it's going to take place and how we know it's going to take place. So glorification, then, it means a full and entire deliverance from sin and evil in all their effects, in every respect, body, soul, and spirit. The whole person will be completely and entirely delivered from every harmful effect of sin, every tarnishing, polluting effect of sin, and this includes creation and not just man. So that's what Paul is going to be talking about and what we're going to be looking at is the full aspect of what does it mean to be glorified. The Bible mentions, and Paul will mention it again later, uh, that um, we're going to be glorified. In fact, the Bible often refers to believers to our glorification in the past tense because with God, his promises are guaranteed to, have, to, to happen that we can look at them in a sense as already being completed. We haven't experienced it yet, but nothing's going to stop it. So he's just trying to use the strongest terms possible to help us to understand that what he's talking about is going to happen so that we, again, have strength and courage and hope as we face the difficulties of life. Uh, again, remember that daily suffering uh, and hardship in life was very much the norm for everyone that was alive during the time of Paul. Remember, there were no modern conveniences. I mean, imagine that there are many, many what we call minor diseases that people that would kill people before. I mean, if you step on a rusty nail, we forget that that can kill you. You can get an infection and it can kill you. And so you, when you go to the doctor, they ask you, when was your last tetanus shot? And if you can't remember, or it's been more than 10 years, they give you another one. And we don't always think about it, but that actually saves your life because you would die from the infection. Um, if you just think of all the individuals that do a daily or a, at least a weekly dialysis on a kidney machine, if this was 200 years ago, everybody, that, those places don't exist. Everybody's dead. They would kill everybody. Um, diabetes. People, people who are born with diabetes, diabetes is caused by a lot of different things. People live for a long time with diabetes. You go back several years, that didn't happen. People die. Um, uh, a toothache can kill you because usually a toothache is because there's an infection and that infection is right here, goes to the brain, you're dead. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, leprosy, which was a huge disease in the Bible, you know, there's no leprosy anymore. I mean, people still get it, but it's treated with an antibiotic. It's like, it's like, it's nothing. It's easily dealt with. But that was a disease that was so debilitating that when you got um, leprosy, you, know, you couldn't live at home. You couldn't be, be in the town. You, they ushered you out um, of, of the area. And you had to live with other lepers to be able to make it. Um, uh, when you read some Jewish history, and I don't think the Jews are the only ones who did this, but this is why I read it, that um, kids would be paid money by merchants that if they saw a leper walking down their street where their market was, they would throw rocks at him until they would go, go to down another street. Because if a leper walks down your street, nobody's gonna go to your shop because they think that, well, they may have touched this merchandise and I'll get leprosy. It was a feared thing. 
Um, and so that just the, um, I, we forget that sometimes, even if you just look at the old uh, cowboy and Indian movies, what we sometimes forget is that the average man in the big move west died around 32. That's when they died. Because life was so hard. Uh, you know, the, the extreme colds and the extreme heat had wear you out, much less the hard work. Um, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And so, you know, the hardships in most countries, especially back during the time of Paul, um, when, you, when, when your wife delivered a baby, there was an 80% chance that your child would never live to the age of one. That was the norm because of all the different kinds of diseases that could kill your child. Uh, and that's why, I think I've mentioned before, in many countries, a child's first birthday is a huge, huge deal. Uh, in fact, uh, in certain Asian cultures, you invite your entire neighborhood to come celebrate uh, the first birthday of a kid because that meant now they had probably a 80% chance to make it, <laughs> to be an adult. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, they, so when Paul writes all these things and he talks about the suffering they're going through now and what they're looking forward to, everybody was able to immediately identify with, with what he was talking about and the hardships of life. So uh, looking at verse 21, again, just a, a, a quick thing. Um, he started up in verse 19 talking about this, but he says, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So Paul basically personifies creation. Um, and the reason why he's doing so is to point out that sin has affected everything. And so the scope of God's deliverance then is not just focused only on individuals. It's on the whole creation is going to be redeemed. So the word corruption, which is an interesting word in verse 21, uh, it, it, the, general, the word generally means to destroy by means of corrupting uh, or to spoil, like, you know, when milk spoils. Uh, but the Greek word, pathora, uh, is sometimes used of decaying food. And the reason why that's important is the basic idea of the Greek word used here in verse 21, when it mentions the corruption of creation, it's not talking about a sudden destruction that you get from external violence, like maybe a tornado or a hurricane or what have you, but it's speaking about a dissolution, dissolution that is brought about by internal decay. So it's a slow process of rotting uh, is the idea. Um, and so it's being used figuratively. When we use it figuratively about the world, we're talking about the rotting of morality, um, where individuals become more and more depraved. Uh, there's a greater and greater loss of integrity. So there's a slow internal decay. And so that's the idea. So creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of this slow internal um, decay that's taking place. And so when, we, when you look around at all the, the differing weather patterns, it's got nothing to do with global warming. It has to do with how God set things up. It's because of sin that all these things are happening. Um, and so it's, and that's going to continue. And there's nothing that's going to stop that until the Lord returns. He mentions at the end of 21, he, he talks about that this deliverance from the bondage of this slow decay, and they're going to be delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So what that refers to is this. That's referring to a time 
when all believers are glorified. So that's the future tense of our salvation. We're all looking forward to being glorified. So he's saying that, the, that, that this is the day that creation anticipates, for it is the day when it will join, that's creation, will join God's children in glorious freedom from two things, death and decay. Uh, and if you read books dealing with the origins of the earth, uh, one of the main things that, one of the main arguments that you'll see being made uh, when we talk about Genesis and talk about uh, how the world is, is that when God first created the world, it was good, there was, there was no curse of sin, so there was no death, there was no decay. Once Adam and Eve sinned, all that began. And so as we've said before, the fancy term we use is that's our, that's our meta-narrative. In other words, that's a story that helps us to explain and understand why the world is the way it is. So why are there, why are there hurricanes? Why are there tornadoes? Why is there cancer? Uh, why do these things exist? Well, it's because of sin. Everything is decaying and breaking down um, because of that. And the only thing that, will, that would deliver that is God himself. So there's two main stages that the Bible talks about when it comes to setting creation free. Uh, the first stage begins when the Messiah, which is Jesus Christ, returns to reign in the millennium. And the Bible talks about that. We'll look, we'll look at only a few verses about that. But the Old Testament is filled with prophecies and declarations as to what the world's going to be like during this reign of Christ. So the easiest way to think about it would be when we look around the world today, we just think about how societies are and how the world functions, whether we're looking at it socially, whether we're looking at uh, weather, whatever happens to be, everything tends to be on the negative side. You know, most people don't believe in God. Most people have to put up with cruelty. There's a lack of justice. There's just a problem everywhere. Um, and then on top of that, there's these hurricanes, earthquakes, etc. During the millennium, it's going to be flipped. Most of the world will be believers. There's not going to be all these storms and earthquakes and all that. It's not going to exist uh, because the world is going to be kind of set right. It's almost like God saying, this is how the world could have been. Um, and so Christ ruled in a thousand years, and there's a lot uh, um, about that in the Bible. We'll see that in a minute. The second stage of this deliverance from sin and death and decay, it follows the thousand-year messianic age. In other words, when the millennium is over, during that time, God will create the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, uh, which is recorded in Revelation 21, and that's where we spend all of eternity. So all of that is given to us so that we can look forward to the future be, uh, and for our deliverance, because God is very much aware of the suffering that's going on in the world today. So the question we do need to ask is, how do we know this? How do we know that there's going to be both the millennial kingdom and then the eternal order? How do we know that's true? Um, so the main answer is, these things are going to happen because they're based on God's promises to Israel. And the fact that those promises have not yet been fulfilled, and God always fulfills his promises. So it's a simple formula. God always keeps his word. He's made these promises. They've not yet been fulfilled. So it's going to happen. And we're going to take a look at that. What is interesting is that the Bible does record more truth and information 
about the characteristics of the millennium, which just stands for a thousand years, or what we might want to call the Messianic age. The Bible records more truth and more information about the millennium than it does about the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. I don't know why it's that way, but there's an enormous amount of information. Uh, some have surveyed that when they look at prophecy in the Bible, 85% of all prophecies in the Old Testament, uh, Revelation, which is the main book we think of when it comes to um, prophecy, basically kind of fills in a few gaps. Because what we need and how we're going to understand all that is in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at some reasons, two main reasons, uh, how we know all this is going to happen. All right. So reason number one, as to how we know there will be a millennial kingdom, uh, which is what we're looking forward to. When the Bible says we're going to reign with him, that's what that's talking about, is just being with Christ and reigning with Christ during the millennial kingdom on the earth. Again, that's based on the promises that God has made to Israel, which we'll get to in a minute. And it's based, and it, and it has to be based on Israel being restored and established. It's called the New Covenant. So turn to Jeremiah 31, and we'll read the specifics of the New Covenant. And that'll help us to understand um, how God is going to relate to us and how this relates to this millennial kingdom. So Jeremiah 31, so you go in the Old Testament, you go to the middle, you find Psalms, go to your right, and you'll come across Isaiah and Jeremiah. They're both big books, so you'll find Jeremiah pretty easy. Chapter 31, and beginning in verse 31, it reads, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. So, if you'll notice, when you look at verse 31, he says, God says that he's making a new covenant with the house of Israel. And when it comes to interpreting the Bible... We take what the Bible says literally. Um, there are no allegories in the Bible except for one, and the Bible tells you when that appears. Um, so we take it literally. There are symbols in the Bible, and we only take things symbolically when the plain text doesn't make sense. And the Bible also always explains the meaning of the symbols. So you don't have to go to a newspaper to figure out what the symbols mean. Uh, and, the, and that's important because sometimes people will read verses in the Old Testament and it talks about an eagle. And people go, oh, that's America. Why is that America? Well, because the symbol of America is the eagle. Well, the eagle is a symbol for other countries as well. Why is it America? That they don't know. It's because it's not a symbol for America. I mean, it is in our vernacular, but in the Bible, that's not what it's talking about. Um, so anyway... So the Bible will let you know what the symbols mean. So when he says he's going to make this new covenant with the house of Israel, uh, 
verse 32 gives us a comparison. Right? It says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land, land of Egypt. So he made an old covenant with Israel when he led them out of Egypt. And the contrast then is not that it is made with a new people, but that the covenant itself is different. Um, and so the new covenant that is described here is a Jewish covenant. So there's five covenants that God made with Israel. And, and of those, four of them are unconditional. And what that means is, is that those whom God makes the covenant with don't have to do anything for the covenant to be fulfilled. They may still have obligations, but those obligations have nothing to do as to whether or not the covenant will be fulfilled because it's all on God. Okay, so if I, so it'd be like this. So if I make a promise to my grandchildren, so I've, um, I mean, obviously I'm not God, so I may not be able to keep all my promises, but I was talking to my grandchildren that are in Korea right now, and I promised them that when they move back to the States, I'm taking them to go see Noah's Ark. Not the one in Tibet, but the one in Kentucky. <laughs> it's a museum. All right, but we're going to go up there. Okay, so now I want my, we didn't talk about this, but I want my grandchildren to be good and to behave, okay? But their good behavior does not determine whether or not we, I'm taking them to the ark. I'm taking them to the ark. It's all on me. So if I'm alive, I'm taking them. If I'm able, hopefully I won't have a stroke or anything, but if I'm able, I'm going to take them there. All right, so the only one that, it, it, the, the promise made to my kids is dependent only upon me for it to be fulfilled. So when God made four of these covenants with Israel, they're unconditional in that sense. God keeps his end of the bargain, it's fulfilled. One of them was conditional, and that means basically you do your part, I do my part, and the conditions are met. And only one of those um, is that one. So again, there are obligations that Israel has to God, but those obligations uh, do not nullify the covenant if they fail to keep them. Um, God placed the fulfillment of those covenants only on himself. So there's a proclamation that the covenant was, that the covenant was broken uh, that has to refer to the Mosaic covenant. That's the one that was broken. That's what he's referring to in verse 32. The Mosaic law, as we saw early in Romans when Paul was talking about the law, the law gives no power to anyone to keep the law. Here, the new covenant is described as being one that will provide that power. So the new covenant, so we're saved under the new covenant. So when I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I enter into this covenant, and God then gives me his spirit, and so he's given me the capability, and he's given me the strength and the power to obey his law obedience to his law does not keep me saved. I am saved completely by him and his power and by his mercy and grace. So I'm obligated to keep the law, to, to do good, to pursue a moral life. I'm obligated to God to do that. If I don't, I'm in disobedience. But my salvation is not dependent upon that. It's dependent upon who God is. And so he has promised that if I am... I always use these terms just because we sometimes mess them up. So if we are truly saved, I say that because individuals can fool themselves into thinking they're saved when they're not. 
All right, so if you are truly saved, you've truly exercised faith in Jesus Christ, then God has saved you for all of eternity, period, which is good news. So that then does mean this, um, because there are some people who are worried that if they either do certain sins or die at a certain time, their salvation might be lost. So I'll try to think of the most difficult scenario we can. So let's say that, um, I'll use Ron because he's the closest to me. So let's say one day Ron and I get into an argument. So we're arguing. And let's say that during the argument, it gets ugly. And so I get angry and then I sin against him because I call him names and that kind of thing. And then in the middle of my second sentence in calling him names, I have a stroke and die. So I was actively, at that moment, sinning against my brother in Christ. When I die, I go to heaven. Because my sin has been forgiven in Christ. All of my sin. Past, present, and future. And we know that it has to be that way. Because if you just think about it for a moment, if you go back in history, when Jesus died for our sins, how many of our sins were future? All of them. We weren't born yet. So, we, you know, this idea that somehow God is unable to forgive us because it's future sins just doesn't make any sense because he says that he has already paid the penalty for all of my sins. So my salvation is not dependent upon that. My rewards are, I may lose rewards because of my sins, but I don't lose my salvation. Just like with our kids. You know, our kids can sin against us, their parents. We may be angry with them. And even if we were to write them out of our will, they're still our kids. Right? That, that their status never changes. Even if, no matter what we say, their status doesn't, because that's, that's just a fact of life. So the idea is we're adopted by God. I'm his child. That would never change. Um, and so that's what Paul wants him to understand. So... Verse 34 in Romans 8 states, I mean in Jeremiah states, that this new covenant will result in a total national regeneration. So, when Jesus dies, there's a lot of things that, are, that, are, that will take place because of the death of Jesus. And um, one of them deals with prophecy, which is what our glorification is all based on. It's based on these covenants that God has made uh, to Israel, and as he fulfills those covenants, we receive the blessings of that. Um, and we'll see that as we go on. So a lot of places talk about a time when Israel will be gathered together, uh, where there's going to be a restoration, a special kind of restoration. Um, what many people don't, don't realize when it comes to this is that, again, remember that these covenants, even today, have not yet been fulfilled with Israel. So God's going to keep his promise with Israel. And that affects all of politics Everything going on in the world is affected by that. So when it comes to that, there was a period of time for a couple thousand years, beginning way back around 70, 73 AD, when Israel basically as a nation ceased to exist. Now that's not unusual. That happens to a lot of old countries back in the day. Um, you can get history books and read about countries that no longer exist. Um, what is unique about Israel and unique about the Jews is normally when a country is overwhelmed by another country 
especially back in those days, then the people who were left alive would be absorbed into the new community or shipped out to other countries and they would lose their national identity. You know, they would no longer be whatever they were and they would learn the language of wherever they were shipped off to because they've got to get along, they've got to be able to, to, to feed their kids and whatever, so you just kind of, you know, people keep merging and becoming whatever. Uh, but for the Jews, that didn't happen. It happened a little bit, but even if they learned the language of wherever they went, they continued to speak Hebrew, they stayed in their, in their communities, and so for the first time in all of history, and secular, secular historians would tell you this, that even though secular historians don't like to use the word miracle, they would say that when Israel became a nation in 1948, that that was a miracle. No people had ever been outside of their borders for that long and retained their culture and their language and then basically were restored to what they were before. I mean, it's, I mean it was stunning in every way, uh, to say the least. And so many individuals, which I believe is correct, we see that as a fulfillment of some of the things in Scripture because God said he's going to do that. I'll read the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 1. Now, that regathering of Israel in 1948, there's, the Bible, I, I believe, speaks of two regatherings, right? The first regathering of Israel is basically in unbelief. So, as the Jews return to the homeland, it's not necessarily a spiritual movement where people believe in God. Some do, some don't. Some become Christians, some don't. There's a second restoration that will happen later, and when that takes place, in the end, all of the Jews that are gathered together are going to be believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so that's, that one's still future. So Hosea, chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, God says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. And then in Romans, in chapter 11, which we'll get to again in a couple of months, but uh, in verse 25, Paul writes, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion." That blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So what Paul is writing about there is that Israel as a nation is blind spiritually. As a nation, they don't recognize as Jesus the Messiah, as that he's the Messiah. Um, and Paul says that they're blind to that and they will remain blind as a nation until... The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So the fullness of the Gentiles is a, is a prophetic um, phrase that's used. And basically what it's talking about is, is that if there's a period of time of history, which we're living in now, where Gentiles are the political power throughout the world and really have political power over Jerusalem. That's Gentiles. That day will come to an end eventually. But until that time comes this blindness and hardness in the part of Israel towards Jesus is going to remain. 
there's a time coming when the fullness of the Gentiles ends and all, a bunch of stuff's going to happen. And part of that will be this salvation uh, of Israel. He says, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So I've mentioned to you before a, a group of word studies called Weast Word Studies. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good uh, uh, small four-volume uh, study of, of the Greek language um, in several different books of the Bible uh, by a guy named Kenneth Weast. And he says this about this passage in Romans 11. By all Israel being saved, Paul means the individual salvation of each member of the nation of Israel living at the time of the second advent. The second advent would be the second coming of Christ. Zechariah 13.1 predicts this cleansing of Israel from its sins in the words, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. So this individual cleansing from sin will be followed by a national restoration to the messianic kingdom with the Messiah reigning on the throne of David in Jerusalem as King of Kings and Lord of Lords for 1,000 years. So all that to say that when you read in the book of Jeremiah that we read, and he talks about uh, this new covenant that he's making, you notice that the way that it's worded is this is all the things that God's going to do. And God's going to make this covenant come to fruition. Um, and so we participate in that as Gentiles, as we believe in Christ, uh, but there's what's contained in the New Covenant is this promise to Israel. The second reason is, if there's another covenant God made with, with um, Israel, and it's called, the for, for ease, it's called the Land Covenant. Um, and basically what that means is there's a piece of land that God has given to Israel that God's going to ensure that Israel gets to keep, which is where they are now. Now, they only have part of what God has promised them. Uh, they don't have all of it, but that's the land uh, that God has promised them. So, Deuteronomy 29 says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. So, this verse is making it clear that, this, that this, what he's talking about here is different from the Mosaic covenant. Because some people get them kind of confused. It's not the same thing. So when you read through Deuteronomy, the rest of chapter 29 uh, describes a summary of the 40 years of wandering. So remember when Israel was delivered from Egypt, uh, they then were going to go into the promised land. There was a little hiccup because uh, Israel sent 12 spies into the land. And when the, when the spies came out, two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, yep, it's a land full of milk and honey, just as God promised. We need to go take it. The other ten said, well, but there's also some giants in the land, and they're going to eat our lunch, basically. And so the people were afraid, and they complained to Moses, like, great, we leave Egypt, and we're going to get slaughtered here. And Joshua and Caleb said, no, God has promised us this. We go fight them. We win. The people complained, and God said, that's it. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years in a big circle, waiting for basically the older generation to die off and the new generation to be raised up. And then they entered the promised land and uh, conquered it. So there's a, uh, a summary of that in Deuteronomy 29. And then uh, 10 through 13, and that's through verse 9 of 
chapter 29 of Deuteronomy. Then when you get to, chapter, to verse 10, sorry, not chapter, but verse 10, it states another covenant needs to be made. In verse 14, it warns them not to turn away from the Lord. And then in verse 22 through 29, it states that they will be, that they will be unfaithful and they will be dispersed. But again, this dispersion is not permanent because there will be a regathering, which is described in Deuteronomy 30. So basically what happens is, is this, the, what's going to happen to Israel is explained to them, and part of it is, this is what you've been doing, and this is what's going to happen. And so what they're told is, God's giving you this land, it's going to be great, you're going to own it, and you're going to sin against God, and you're going to be punished for this. And you're going to be spread everywhere. You're going, to, you're going to be kicked out of the land. And you're going to be dispersed among all these different peoples. But a day is coming when God's going to bring them together. And they'll be back in the land. Which is what I believe took place in 1948. So let me read from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Which helps to explain some of this. He says, Now it shall come to pass. When all these things come upon you. The blessing and the curse which I have set before you. And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. According to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart, with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven from there, the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Also, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you, and you will again obey the voice of the Lord, and do all his commandments which I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, and the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So there's this regathering here that takes place after they have returned to the Lord. So this is, this is that next regathering. So again, 1948 is the first regathering. It's an unbelief. Then there's a time coming when Israel is going to return to the Lord. They're going to believe in God. And when that happens, then they'll be regathered again. And that, would, and that regathering would be in belief. So that's why... Um, you may have noticed this, that for many Christians, the Middle East, and in particular, what happens in Israel, is always of great interest. Because a lot of things going on there kind of give to us an indication as to what's going to happen in the future. We have an idea, a pretty good idea, of most of what's going to happen in the future. We just don't know when. We know it's soon, because obviously every day that goes by, it's sooner than it was yesterday. Uh, and so as we see different things in the world, politically, all these different changes that are taking place, that's kind of par for the course, because the Bible does dictate what's going to happen. So, and the general outline will be, uh, basically, uh, at some point in the future, 
And so I don't know if that's in 10 years or 20 years. Um, I no longer think it's going to be that far away. But there is going to be a one world government. Everyone's already, you know, all the different countries are already talking about that. Uh, that's been all the think tanks, you know, because they want to try to, because there's, they want, they believe, what man believes in general is that man, apart from God, can solve all of his problems. And some of the problems we have now is number one, there are probably over 100 civil wars taking place throughout the world. How do you end a civil war? Well, there are those who say you erase boundaries. If you get rid of borders, there's nothing to fight over. Now, that's easier said than done. You can, you can say the border no longer exists. Everybody knows that's the border. <laughs> All right, so it's not like it's going to be this peaceful thing. But the secular think tanks, they believe that um, they need to get rid of borders. Another thing is, is the problem of food. There's millions of people that are starving every year. And what makes it so unnerving is we have enough food on the planet to feed everybody. It's just not getting uh, distributed as it should. There's different things that stop it. Civil wars in countries stop it. Greedy governments uh, stop it. Um, I remember when way, way back when there was a bunch of entertainers, singers, got together with Michael Jackson and they sang that song, We Are the World, and they raised millions and millions of dollars to send food over to certain countries in Africa, and the food arrived and stayed on the boats because the government there would not let them unload it. Then that government sent military trucks out into the desert to announce to the people that the world, and in particular the United States, had promised them food and that it never came. And then when they did start to unload the ships, they unloaded them in certain warehouses so that the military could have food, but that was it. That's, that's what man does. You, you know, man apart from God, that's par for the course. All right, so the way that you, um, so the think tanks then want to be able to solve the problem of world hunger, and so you want to eliminate civil war. You do that by getting rid of borders. When you get rid of borders, um, you also have to have a more of a streamlined way to deal with um, Distribution, the way you do that is by the merging of governments. Uh, and so you want to eliminate national identity and move towards a one world government, which people will actually volunteer. They, will, they want that to happen. They believe that's the way. And so along the way, a lot of different small things have happened to, to set the tone. And that is there's more and more movement to a global kind of currency. Don't know what it's going to be. I don't think it's going to be the American dollar. Maybe it'll be Bitcoin. I have no idea. All I know is, because of the internet, all of this stuff is happening really fast. Uh, lots of communication. Uh, I mean, already, I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I buy medicine from India. You know, I can buy medicine from Mexico. I don't have to go to my pharmacist. I can't get everything from India, but I can get a lot of stuff, all right? Because it's available. We have the internet. You can do all these different kinds of things. But that's going to increase to a degree. But then the government's going to have to have more control but different governments have kind of competing ideologies, and so that's going to have to be kind of dealt with. And so the Bible, when the Bible says, I mean, one world government, all these things are being set in place for that to happen. And it's going to happen really pretty quickly um, in one sense. And so, and all that still centers on the Middle East. Um, and eventually what will happen is, is a day will come. Right now, most people think of New York City 
as being the uh, center, an economic center of the world. That's, that's where the New York Stock Exchange is and all those things. And one day that will change. There's a lot of money, guess where? In the Middle East. And there's, there, they've been rebuilding Babylon for a while and Babylon is gonna be the new economic center. And so the stage is being set for all this. Again, I don't think it's gonna be next Tuesday, um, but things are happening. Um, and so that's why all of this is, is, should be so interesting to us. But also what we see really is as these things unfold, it, it's almost like you have to keep shaking your head. Yeah, the Bible's right. Yep, the Bible's right. And so, and, and when it comes to what's gonna to happen to the Jews in the world and Christians, it's gonna to get tough. Because the, the world needs someone they can blame for bad things. And that's gonna to, to be the Jews again and Christians. We'll all be made out to be wacko fundamentalists. Uh, we are gonna be the radical jihadist, uh, so to speak. And um, uh, we are gonna be the ones that are gonna be picked on. And so a lot of things are gonna culminate with that. So all these things that we're, that we're reading about here, um, everything is set in motion. You know, and God is working throughout the world to make all these things happen. And so as we see this happening, even though it can be unnerving on one hand, we know that God's in charge. This is just evidence that what God says is going to happen is going to happen. And the day of, of our deliverance from all this mess is going to happen. It's, it's almost as if God's going to allow sin to run its full course. So in the future, God doesn't have to have this happen, but it seems like this, this would be a way to, to express it. So in the future, no one can ever say, well, I know things are good now, but you know, Man was, able, was just pretty close to getting the upper hand on God. All right, now, that's a foolish statement, but God's going to let it run its entire course. So in the end, he wins, obviously, and no one can ever say, yeah, but he cheated or he cut it short because he's not going to do that. It's going to come to fruition and he will end it, um, which will be a great day. So... Uh, in Isaiah chapter 11, let me read verses 11 through 16. Speaking of the same thing, he says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. So that's very important. It tells you right there, for the second time. When was the first? 1948. There's no other time that fits that. So it has to be then. And so he tells us, From Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. And they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind, he shall shake his fist over the river and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dryshod. There shall be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day when he came up from the land of Egypt. So again, all that to say that God's going to fulfill his land covenant uh, with Israel. And again, that's how we know that 
our glorification is going to take place because it's based on these promises that God has made to Israel and they're not yet fulfilled, but they're going to be and even says they are. So when we get back together next week, we'll talk about uh, the real big one, which is the Abrahamic covenant um, and see what that says. The promises that God made to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis and see how that fits into all this. And then from there, uh, hopefully, we will have a greater sense of certainty that everything that's going on, even in a day of uncertainty, we'll have a greater sense of certainty that, that everything is in God's hands and there's nothing to worry about. It's going to be, it's is going there to be good. anything in the Bible that suggests when Israel will come around to Jesus? Because yeah. They're so adamantly against it. They are. And it does say that. I can't tell you right now because I don't want to get ahead of myself. So Israel's coming back together to mm-hmm. keep his promises to people. Mm-hmm. When did Jesus enter the picture for the Jews? Uh, it'd be sooner. Th- it'd be soon. That'll be. Uh, we'll be. We won't be here when it happens. We won't be. No, I don't think so. We'll be in heaven. But it'd be doing all this stuff. Yeah. Well, no. You have to wait till you get back to Earth. You have to be. You have to wait for the millennium for that. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and goodness. And Father, we do thank you for these covenants, for these, these contracts or promises that you made with Israel. Father, we see that how the whole Bible fits together uh, and that as we look at these things, Lord, we see how the promises you've made to us are tied into you keeping your promises with Israel. And Father, in the end, we are going to be blessed. They are going to be blessed. Sin is going to be eradicated and life is going to be great in every way. And Father, we're so grateful for that. Father, we ask that you would remind us that the key to all these things for every individual is to make sure that we are in the family of God. And that takes place, Lord, when we believe in Jesus Christ and we are adopted as his sons into the family. And so, Father, we thank you once again for the gift of salvation and that we don't have to earn these things because if we did, well, we would never quite make it. So, Father, you're good to us. You continue to be a good God, even in spite of all the disobedience that is headed your way. We ask now that you would keep us safe as we go home. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to remain faithful to you in all things, in all matters. And, Lord, we look forward to Sunday where we can gather together again to worship you and praise your name and be encouraged together um, as we worship you. We thank you, Father, again for your patience with us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.